Carl, by the way. Welcome. All right, everyone, welcome to the UK Sangha. Um, we are known as the Dhamma Delighters, as per named by me right now. Um, some of us go by the Dhamma Friends. Um, I think that's the general cons consensus, but uh, welcome aboard either way uh, to the Dhamma podcast. And uh, I hope you enjoy your Dhamma content and please become a Dhamma subscriber. Uh, so we we're just talking about um, uh, the mind of a scientist or the approach of a scientist and how um, uh, the parallels we can draw to um, effective practice. So a good scientist who uh, performs an experiment or conducts an experiment, although they may have a hypothesis or an expected result, um, the point of the experiment is to see uh, the way that it really is or what's actually going to happen um, when you set up those causes and conditions of the experiment. So you set up the parameters of the experiment and uh, it's purely set to have the result that is directly caused by the conditions of the experiment. And there's no agenda or wa wanting it to be one way or the other. The scientist wants to see, hey, How's it going, man? Hello. The scientist want, genuinely wants to see what the outcome of the experiment is going to be, regardless of what they think it's going to be. And uh, this means that there's no um, craving or aversion to what happens in the experiment. They're genuinely interested in what's going to happen. And the result is a good result. As long as the experiment didn't have any errors, the result is a good result, even if it's opposite of their hypothesis, hypothesis, if it's the same, if it's inconclusive, that experiment is a good experiment because now we know what happens when we run that experiment and you can write and you can write a research paper on it and it can be repeated and see if they get that result. So, uh, I like this in reference to the Dhamma. Um, right. One analogy that uh, I was using yesterday was the difference between um, a woodworker and, say, a modern architect, uh, where the woodworker has a piece of wood in front of them. Uh, maybe they're building a table, a bench, whatever. And their job is to take the wood and do whatever is necessary to get it to that thing. And they do it step by step. Where a modern architect, you see some of the modern buildings, skyscrapers, skyscrapers, abstract buildings with metal sheets hanging out for 50 feet. They use uh, 3D modeling programs. The person has to go to university. There's a whole lot of preparation involved and thinking about things and uh, contemplation beforehand. Where the Dhamma practice is very practical. It's a lot like woodworking, right? It's not about gathering information, gathering more information, gathering more information, preparing, 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 preparing. It's about preparing enough, trying it, seeing if it works. If it works, keep doing it. If it doesn't work, reassess and come up with a new hypothesis. Right, right, right. So, so uh, yeah, so we're, we're running experiments in our own practice and... Uh, uh, the results is the um, the the happiness or the absence of of dukkha or the dukkha nirodha is the result. And uh, we run certain experiments and we see that it doesn't produce dukkha nirodha. And uh, so we look, we stop, we reevaluate, we see, look at what we're doing, and see if that doesn't work, and then we do something else. So. Um, it's kind of a more um, intelligent, realistic approach, a more um, effective way of learning, because um, a lot of meditation and spirituality is, um, so someone's given a method, right? 
update to the way that they understand the method, the way that they interpret the method, they start applying the method. But the method doesn't work. Um, whether whether it be a misapplication of the method or not a good method is beside the point. The way that they're doing the practice is not working. But there is a superstitious belief that eventually it will work. So they keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, and they get the same results over and over and over again. It's like a banging your head in the on the on the head with a hammer. Uh, and then why might you do that? And at some point, I'm going to get enlightened if yeah. I do it enough. So the the only times so the when these does produce results is they bang their set self on the head with the hammer so many times and for so long that they get so sick of it that they completely stop it altogether. And well, wow, okay, now it feels really great that I stopped doing that, and that's <laughs> and that's the result. So that now they're like, oh, it works now because they got fed up with doing it and they stopped doing it. But um, a more. Uh, so if you want to bang yourself on the head with a hammer for 20 years and then get fed up with it and then and then uh, realize the fruit of stopping doing that, then you could do that. But uh, a more effective way, a more intelligent approach is to. You bang yourself on the head and the hammer. So you either you don't fully understand the method you don't understand what it means to um, gladden the mind so you try the way that you know you um, perceive it to be and that's fine so you bang yourself on the head with hammer it doesn't work you go okay you look you see the results and you you stop and look at what you're doing so instead of um try try again uh if at first you don't succeed, look at what you're doing and you say, okay, this is not the causes and conditions for happiness. And you reevaluate and you reassess and you, and you create and you tweak the method. Or maybe you might ask the teacher, what am I going, doing wrong here? The one who gave you the method to begin with, or you intuit maybe what you're doing wrong, you change it and then you try that. And it doesn't work stop and look look at what you're doing again so it may have a degree of persistence to where it you're doing you're trying new things or you're tweaking the method or you're you're reevaluating you're stopping and looking you're repeating that process but <clears throat> what you're not repeating is doing the same thing over and over again expecting a different result from the first time because Chances are it's going to be the same result. Madness. That's like, yeah, it's it's a it's a definition of madness. And uh, when when you eventually do get a different result, it'll be because <laughs> you 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 stopped and you did something different, and then that something different worked, and then you retroactively think that it was what you were doing all along, but it wasn't. You did something different, <laughs> which is just completely. <laughs> completely like, uh, how do you call it? Like sort of a gamble for most people. They don't even realize, oh, this is what I did to get this different right. outcome. <clears throat> right, now we're at the victimhood or the mercy of it. Um, but so the the beauty of the, the teaching of the Buddha is of a full scale understanding that everything arises, um, due to its causes and conditions and passes away due to uh, lack thereof. So the, the arisal and the continued arisal of something, um, it can be predicted and it can be analyzed and it can be broken down and it can be seen for yourself why these things are correlated with other things and why things arise. So um, actually doing that is Actually seeing that is a skill that that can be developed. I'm not saying it's like an easy skill to just like just do it right away, but it is a skill that can be developed rather than, oh, like some woo-woo approach where it's like, oh, you just have to wait for the grace or the mercy of it. 
no, there's actually certain, <laughs> certain things will lead to certain outcomes. And it's, it's a law of nature. Like, it's just the way that it works. And it's like the most irrational way that it would work. Um, and uh, especially once you discover in your own mind, um, um, Dukkha Naroda, but, but not just um, mysterious Dukkha Naroda, but Dukkha Naroda that is a direct result of the causes and conditions that you are toying with, you start, you start to become your own master. So you start to become on top of your own pile of dirt and uh, you start to get your, your shit together <laughs> because you see how the mind works and you know how you start to learn how to master it and train it in such a way that uh, is conducive to feeling how you want to feel. Yes, before that, we sort of just were blindfolded. Uh, in the sense of blindfolded by the hindrances, blindfolded by when we want something, the only way we know how to get rid of that dissatisfaction is going and getting it. If we don't want something, the only way we know how to get rid of that dissatisfaction is trying to get it away. And it's we're not rational agents in the process uh, observing it, right? When we see, uh, I've been using the analogy of uh, scrolling through your phone and seeing an ad for, oh, order pizza, buy one, get one free. And there's liking for that pizza, there's wanting for that pizza, and the person overcome by that wanting is born into a state of greed, wanting the pizza, needing the pizza, and orders the pizza and gets that pizza, and that's the only way they know. But what one starts to learn when they start to practice is that that's the, not the only way to get rid of that dis dissatisfaction. First of all, they didn't really know that dissatisfaction was there in the first place. So they start to familiarize themselves with that. They start to actually look of when I see this pizza, there's a sort of hole inside me. And then we can start to wake up from that blindness, from that state of dissatisfaction into really coming in touch with the body, right? Because when one's first starting, the hindrances are the main habit. The ordinary way of thinking is the main habit. So coming in contact with the body, paying attention to the breath, taking really full, deep breaths, rather than the um, instinctual, shallow type of breathing that most of us uh, go along doing in our ordinary lives. And so once one is in touch with the body then, they start to relax. They can also start to think more wholesome thoughts. Instead of thinking, I need the pizza. I don't need the pizza right now. I can put the phone down or I can continue on scrolling and I can put the pizza off for an hour. I can put the pizza off for a day. And right now I can be satisfied just right here and now. The grass grows by itself. No problems. Mm. Justice, the sculpture of justice has a blindfold. So even on the highest level, on the mundane world, this is the role model you get. You get uh, a woman blindfolded with a sword and a, like, what is it called, a scale? Or if you, when you weigh things against each other, what's the Is cultist? your point that uh, even people working in the justice system are <laughs> by the same? For example, yeah, more yes. like uh, this using this symbol, even this symbol is flawed in the in the core, in the core essence. And the only thing I, I get across the government for unwholesome reasons. Is right? the they, Buddha. they think the whole world is wrong and it's and they think the world is theirs and it's their job to fix it. So they get into the government uh, to fix the world and uh, where the point being, they're not thinking from a rational adult level of I'm going to take this action and it'll have this outcomes, this impact on the world. I'm going to get into office. I'm going to do this one thing. I'm going to, they're not thinking at the individual task level. They're more thinking of a fear of what's going to happen to the world. If I don't get in the office, I need to control this. And so I'm going to run for office, get in power, and then I'll have control. And 
uh, flawed control. Where oftentimes the government system doesn't work like that, where uh, you oftentimes don't have as much control as you think you will. And there are much better ways to spend one's time benefiting others and benefiting the world if you're seeing clearly. Another, um, I think, you know, I think every profession has a need. But, uh, you know, it's even, I would say if you're a judge and you're judging people all day and that's your job, it's going to be um, very difficult to not become uh, entranced and identified with that role of being a judge. Like, I am the, I am the adjudicator, like, of the comma machine. Like, I am justice. So you start to develop... Uh, and an identity and we all do this in our own minds of when we would like uh, we do something um, out of spite or out of revenge we think uh, this is setting it even or this is me getting even and uh, it feels good and you think that you're some sort of arbiter of justice or arbiter of truth without seeing that you're falling into the same pitfall um that someone someone might be in when they commit a violation against you so the the i think it says in the dhammapada that um something to the extent of like hatred can never be solved by hatred but by love alone so like so by removing yourself from the whole cycle of ill will completely of getting even of adjudicating justice on people, can these things be resolved? Um, uh, and that's a more spiritual approach. And, uh, you know, maybe someone with that approach, we need those ki kinds of people um, as judges and in, in the legal system and, and, and things like that. Um, and well, the point we're making, exactly. You're exactly right. And the people who stop judging in their own mind don't end up becoming judges because they know the government system is very judgmental right right but uh you know it doesn't have to be that way but um going back to the the experiment and the uh scientific thread of things um i think parker shared something uh whereas the experiment with children and uh essentially they they were given a toy that they wanted but it's behind a glass, a glass barrier. And then there, there's no way that the child can get past it. And they, they just wanted to see how each child would react when they're given an object of desire, but it's behind a glass barrier that they cannot, they can't reach behind. And uh, so we get, so I, we get to see like how different children react and some will realize that they can't get the toy and they will try over and over again without success to access the toy through the glass wall. And then they will cry and they will lament about it. And then an, on the other hand, another child realizes that they can't get the toy and they lose interest immediately and then go back to just being a happy little baby. Do you so remember they, how old they were? They're very young. I, I don't remember, but they're very, very, mm -hmm. very young in the beginning stages of development. So, um, smart. And we're taught to look like the first child. We're taught yeah. to want things we don't have, even though we know we're not going to get them. Uh, wanting, uh, we're taught to want things far out in the future that aren't immediate. And so we relate to meditation in the same way, like you were saying, that they sit down and just sits even though they know they're not getting some benefit they think just by sitting for a certain amount of period of time for a certain amount of years at some point they're going to get some magical benefit right so um we cause ourselves our own dissatisfaction by repeatedly um desiring for the things that we don't have and not only don't have but we can't get it right now so something that's not attainable something that we can't get right now in this moment we desire for it and we proliferate about it even though 
it's behind the glass wall and we can't get it. So we're causing ourselves our own dissatisfaction over and over again for literally no reason when we could realize, oh, that's not, I don't have access to that. I don't have it. I don't need it and move on. <laughs> and then just go back to being satisfied with the way things are. So we can see at a very fundamental level um, the results of these two approaches. One will lead to a temper tantrum and one will lead to a satisfied baby. And then so um, to realize that we all have an inner child and our inner child throws temper tantrums based on these same uh, reactions and mechanisms of how we approach life and getting what we want or what we don't want. Um, so if you know how to um, um, see your inner child when it's happening and you know how to step in as the adult um, with wisdom and then change and then um, interfere with that process to the extent where uh, um, the, the, the adult, the frontal cortex, the, the rational mind is in charge rather than um, the parts of yourself that go into hindrances, that go into grief, that go into lamentation and sorrow. Because uh, you, can, you can think about going into lamentation and sorrow as a kind of temper tantrum that we throw. Because why does the baby throw a temper tantrum? Well, the one that throws a temper tantrum is because of their own ignorance of not understanding how things work and how the way it really is. If you, if you understand how the whole show of it works, how the whole mechanism works, then it's throwing a temper tantrum is just absurd. It's like, it's, it's a waste of energy. So you, you don't, so you don't pay, you don't pay mind attention to the things that cause yourself dissatisfaction and waste your own energy and don't bring any fruit. So they're not useful in any way. And you can start to wake up to the fact that most, a lot of our thoughts are not useful in any way like this. It, they're, they're causing yourself dissatisfaction. So the practice then is to wake up to these thoughts when they're happening, wake up to the thoughts that poop your diaper, so to speak, and uh, cause you to throw a, a inner temper tantrum and then uh see see that these thoughts are not helping me and they're just actually causing me um pain grief and sorrow um or you can just say if you don't want to get into that extreme sort of language you could just say that this is causing me dissatisfaction just simply dissatisfaction and uh and then rinse and repeat. So this thought is causing me dissatisfaction. It's not worth having. Out you go. It's not. It's not that. Uh, it's not that this thought makes you a bad person. Oh, this thought means you're practicing incorrectly. This thought, you're, uh, you have ill will and like, oh, you're now you're, 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 you're producing all these hindrances and this thought creates more blame and more judgment. That's uh, just more of the same. That's having thoughts that cause you dissatisfaction about thoughts that cause you dissatisfaction. So to, <laughs> to wake up to even that and see, nope, just stop it right there. This thought is causing me dissatisfaction. It's not worth having. And then another one causes you dissatisfaction. Well, that one isn't worth having. And then, and then you get to the point where this thought is causing satisfaction or, oh, this is not dissatisfaction, this is nice, then bingo. That's what you want. It's just as simple as that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There are unwholesome thoughts and wholesome thoughts. Yeah. Dukkha and Dukkha Naroda. And the practice is choosing Dukkha Naroda, wholesome thoughts, over and over and over and over again. And by doing that, we begin to recondition the mind. 
Our whole lives, we talk ourselves into feeling bad. Now we know we can talk ourselves into feeling good. Right, and then once you... So interesting. Because it reminds me of the of the podcast, Daniel Ingram, Damarato. They're talking about, I think, the Mahasi debate or something like this. <laughs> Daniel Ingram, like, I mean, he is... Uh, he's a well, well respected, well received part of of this Western Buddhism thing, pragmatic Dharma and so on. And he was like, when when Damarato stated this this concept of <laughs> working with the 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 thoughts themselves, Daniel Ingram was like. This, this is not working. This can't work. <laughs> like you know, like completely uh, irritated by thinking about it this way. It's well, so, uh, so, what, so funny. Not, what, what what someone <clears throat> else thinks about it is not, or how they react to it, it's not really interesting to us or to me. What's interesting is seeing for yourself. This is not what I wanted to say with this. No, no, I know, I know, but um, like. Thoughts of, like thoughts of, uh, of essentially comparing and judging certain things. No, it, no, I'm not judging. I'm like, not comparing in that way. It's it's kind of just like a, a the method is so simple that it's either you apply it and you see the results for yourself. You don't, you don't think, you don't need, it doesn't matter whether someone else thinks it works or doesn't, or thinks it doesn't work. I think it works because, and it matters, of course it matters, because uh, if you are not able, if someone asks you, for example, about the practice, and you're not able to, to determine through a certain amount of judgment, uh, more wisdom applied way of judging things. I don't know if I'm phrasing that right. You know, don't hang on the cling on the words. It's more about like, how do I approach someone who is not able to see that it is so simple, even if this person is so accomplished. You know what I mean? I so this is here's so funny. The here's the difference that I would distinguish here. Mm-hmm. So the difference between uh, effective practice, someone who co- becomes an effective meditator, um, like many of us in the Sangha and you as well, Veda, is instead of, uh, you, can, you can draw the analogy of someone um, who, reads, who reads the headline of an article and then determines their worldview or their stance or their viewpoint based off the headline of a scientific article, instead of, uh, as opposed to the person who reads the research paper, uh, gets the parameters of the experiment, repeats the, ex- the actual experiment for themselves and sees if they get the same result as the research paper that they read it about. Who is so, doing that? Most of the spiritual world is you read a headline and you go, oh, this practice works because this guy said it does. And you don't actually do the experiment and you don't actually apply it because- Who is doing that, Scott? No. Uh, who in the, in the normal world is doing this? Yeah, most of the world doesn't actually read, they read the first headline and then that's how they- Exactly. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Exactly, that's what I'm talking about too, just from a different so, angle. So the the beauty of Dhammarada's uh, method and or the the Buddha's method is that the results are immediate and the results are are uh, the you don't have to stay waiting and guessing if something works or not um, because you can see immediately how it works. The scientific approach. Um, Right, and uh, and certain um, aspects of of the uh, method 
certainly includes noting things and uh, Vipassana in that sense, because that's part of the skills that you need to develop to wake up to um, all the unwholesome thoughts that the mind is having. Because, because um, Mara is very tricky. So although the practice is simple, um, the unwholesome thoughts are, and I'm sure we've all experienced it, this is going to find a back door in, a way in through the back door. So the unwholesome thoughts will pop up and be sneaking in other places. And so you picked up this rock, you found, aha, I see you, Mara. I see this unwholesome thought and it's not worth having. And then it's hiding behind the tree over there now. So it's sneaking around. So you have, you become a very, um, you're, you're, uh, the, the, the precision of your awareness. So the skill of Vipassana is still a valuable skill because we use that to see really what's going on. If the mind and, is ready for work. Yeah. So see, see accurately and, uh, and, uh, Again, part of seeing clearly is, like you said, when the mind is fit for work. So we we just start to generate some of that momentum ourselves to push it out. So if there's all these unwholesome thoughts going on, so we're, we're surrounded by all this darkness. Instead of trying to um, shoo out all the darkness, it might be more effective just to start our own fire right here. So we start our own success. Aha, I see you, Mara. Don't worry about other, all the unwholesome thoughts going on. Just this thought. Start our own success momentum. I see you, Mara. Start where, so we're starting a fire right here. And uh, that, that will occupy some space and that will light, light your surroundings in such a way that, oh, now I am in a wholesome state of my own doing. And then now that I am in a wholesome state of my own doing, now I can see Mara creeping in through the back door and trying to get in through all these nooks and crannies um, disguised as, uh, you know, thoughts that might seem desirable and that might seem pleasurable at first. Ooh, like I like this thought. This thought, uh, this thought makes me feel better than that. This thought this thought um, about someone getting what they deserve or something like that might be on on the immediate uh, the the first sighting of it might seem to be enjoyable but actually um, these thoughts if we look closely at the full um, flowering of them lead to um, feeling bad okay good seeing you man and the idea of someone deserving something is ridiculous that there's that is just more work of the judgmental like we were talking about the judge the criminal deserve to be put in prison and (laughs) the uh you know victims deserve to be free where that is ridiculous that's just social conditioning that we have that people that do certain things uh, kill people, steal from people. Uh, they're bad and they should be put in jail. Where what they do certainly harms people. We can see that very clearly. But throwing that person out like an outcast, they're evil. That's just the work of the judgmental mind. A wise approach or a wise way of seeing that would be that uh, certain causes and conditions Kama, if we're using Buddhist language, has brought this person to commit these uh, acts that cause suffering, dissatisfaction for himself and others. And if we're talking about a systemic problem, uh, maybe a wiser way of dealing with this person would be to rehabilitate them rather than throw them into a cell. Now, debating politics and how to implement that is a different thing, but on a individual seeing someone seeing them doing something unwholesome uh we can either choose to act ignorantly and dislike what they're doing or we can see the broader perspective and see that 
this is just a person that's suffering. I agree. And um, that's that's more so talking about like the systemic systemic macro level of things, which is valuable. But uh, in terms of day to day practice, um, it's going to be your coworkers, your family members, the people like that who not committing some sort of atrocious crime. But they, all of the touch if someone takes the chips from the <laughs> yeah so right right so little someone slights you someone um puts you down or something like that someone uh they stop you from getting that promotion or something like that spreading malicious gossip so things that like people in social they're going to encounter um and most most directly and most immediately their own family and then uh the people they work with friend circles, uh, they, these these people are going to create um, agitation in the mind um, because, because of how we view ourselves and how we attach to things and how, um, how, how we try to navigate social hierarchies and, and try to play that game of, of being a human, really. And uh, these, these are the ones that are hiding these types of thoughts because they seem so normal and so natural. Whereas something more obvious might be, oh, that person kill, killed someone, they killed someone I know, or they did something on the news and then that's a more obvious reaction of, oh yeah, that's obviously that's gonna cause some ill will or not, depending on how I view it. But the ones that sneak in through the back door are the ones with your family members, your parents, your brothers and sisters, your coworkers, even your best friends. So these are the ones that you have to find hiding, and you have to uh, you have to you know drain the swamp of these thoughts going on because we delight in them. So we we take we take joy in them, but it, what it, what it really does is it causes us harm, and it doesn't make us feel good, and it makes us feel um, small, resentful, spiteful, and uh, it, it 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 really uh, whatever the yeah. mind moment that we're having that thought, we're a victim. Right. We think that something out in the world that we're angry at right. is the cause of why we're dissatisfied, and we need to be dissatisfied because of that thing. Exactly. So, although the mind defends it and says, "I deserve to be angry," really, we're putting ourselves down. Right. And right the likelihood then of it spreading to other people is also have control of our mind. The, we're not above the world. We're getting right. involved in it, and it, this can be a very subtle thing. I really appreciate you bringing this back down from the extreme example of <laughs> just someone doing something, uh, maybe cracking a joke, and maybe there's something uh, that we don't like when people crack that cer certain kind of joke, and in the mind, some ill will will arise, uh, and in that moment. We're not a champion. Right. So seeing that moment and saying, hey, I can be a champion. They're just cracking a joke. Right. And uh, yeah, that, that mentality of I'm above it all. So we're not going to um, be baited out by this, be baited into uh, becoming butthurt about something or, or, or like, oh, I'm like, how dare you say that about me? You know, I'm a big shot. You know, Elevated I do. mind. And uh <laughs> So like, like, uh, if you're above it, if you really are above it, um, and you feel that you feel being above it all, then these things won't cause you ill will. You'd be, you'd be wishing them well. You'd be like, okay, this happened. I right, wish them well. Hope, hope that works out well for them. And then, which is the complete opposite of what people think it is, because people mostly think it is, has something to do with arrogance. Yeah, with arrogance, but it's not. <clears throat> That's right. completely the wrong way to put it. Right. Perfect. So it's not arrogance. It's actually a like a holy indifference kind of, and it's uh, very empowering and leads to better feelings and actually treating others better but when you are a victim in your own mind you're going to lash out as a defense mechanism so when you put you say oh i'm a victim of this person you're going to connive and you're going to lash out in ways you're going to 
try to get 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 even you're going to try to get back at them use extreme examples we can see people like putin or donald trump who are in positions of power and they don't feel like they're in control so they need to make big governmental change to uh feel like right. they're in control how most wars start on the macro mm-hmm. level how, okay like like what was the whole like so there was a terrorist attack so now we start an incredibly expensive war and occupation of iraq that causes all this damage and doesn't change anything really it didn't solve anything and it just it's it's a needless war that causes more destruction and havoc um and ordinary families are fighting wars day in and day out over small slights big slights right just different things where if someone can take responsibility of their own mind of these unwholesome thoughts and glad the mind and relax them, they can retreat from the battle. Right, retreat. It's like going on retreat. Exactly. Um, and then I think there's a good quote uh, from the Tao Te Ching and like Taoism. Um, I think I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but something like you win every battle that you're not a part of or something like that. It's something to that extent. Like uh, the best way to conquer your enemies is to befriend them. I know that's not from the Tao Te Ching, but that's a pretty good quote. Yeah, like, exactly. No one ever wins an argument. Uh, right. That you either uh, crush the person, make them feel bad, and after that you feel bad, or right. they uh, they win the argument per se, and you end up feeling bad, thinking of ways you could have argued differently. The way to win an argument is not to argue. Right. So next time... Uh... That's good you said that, Parker. So, like, instead of uh, taking it to, I mean, if it's like some trivial, inconsequential thing, um, instead of taking it to Google, showing them that you're, they're wrong, rubbing it in their face, look at the Google search. You were wrong this whole time. Ha ha! I'm right. You're you're such an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe you can just be like, oh, okay, you know. Uh, Maybe you're right. I'd have to check that on Google, but uh, you might be right on that one or something like that, you know? But it's it's like uh, <laughs> you want to conquer this person, you know? You want to show, prove them wrong. And, uh, you it know, does, I mean, it depends it, on the spirit. Thank you for correcting me. I was wrong and you gave me the right answer and yeah. now I won't keep giving that wrong answer. Thank you so much. That was a great gift. And, and Right. And then it also depends on the spirit of the argument. So you have to be honest with yourself. If you're just like, if you're just uh, debating and all in good spirit with someone, like you know, there's nothing wrong with that. That's how we, that's how we uh, change our minds, and that's how we come to new conclusions, and that's how we communicate information. So it's more about confidence, right? Right. It's about the intention of looking for data that is correct, rather than holding on to some designated outcome that we're finding data to support, that we're looking for more data. And hey, if you have some piece of data over here that uh, I didn't consider previously and it results in me coming to a different conclusion, thank you. Right. If you're absolutely sure, you're confident. So it needs no reassurance through debating or discussing something. It's more important to make friends. It's more important to go to uh, other lanes of communication or whatever right that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that uh if someone is let's say about to do something totally destructive or stupid that you're not uh that you're not trying your trying your best trying and your best you know uh to stop that person from doing uh certain stupid things but at the same time, what is the what is the what is the right approach uh, to do that in that way? So there is always an intermingling between right noble wisdom and right noble effort, and also a mundane situation you are in. So so I see people who are masters of certain parts of Buddhism. And they're engaging in uh, taking a flag upon them 
towards like let's say uh, anti-gay community or anti this part of the population or pro this part so just having a certain amount of wisdom or a certain amount of the eightfold noble path is not enough it has to always be um validated through a process of experience uh, uh, and real accomplishment and real noble wisdom otherwise you're going to make probably more damage than you're doing good yes i really like your point about friendship at the beginning that uh we can look at when communicating with others and especially in arguments that there are two sides that we're looking at uh two wings in the bird uh, <clears throat> friendship and truth right um and we can uh the far end of the true spectrum would be brut being brutally honest with the person. You did this thing and it was this way, but most people aren't willing to see the truth. Most people will just get combative. And when we give them the truth like that, it's of no benefit to them because they'll just see us as an enemy and write us off. So then the skillful way to approach things is leaning towards the friendship side of befriending the person, of making them feel safe of uh, really just uh, being positive and uh, stuff like that. Uh, and if we lean towards that side of things, then once your friends, once they know you're on your side, then you can help them scope things out. Maybe uh, help them take their blindfold off and see things a little more clearly. The but stuff like that, like uh, the stuff like that, that's what I'm, what I'm referring to, right? Exactly, exactly so. And that we uh, approach people from a place of friendship where what they believe isn't really that as important as if they're feeling good right now. And if they can continue to feel good, we can keep them in that state of feeling good. Because most people are pretty smart. There are some really stupid people out there, but most people are really smart or fairly smart. They're just uh, deluded by different emotions uh, and different ways of conditioning of things should be this way. Or I feel like a victim for this reason that's been ground in over the years and years. So it's not that they've taken in all the data and have come to some conclusion. There's some emotion, uh, some uh, something pulling them in some way or another. And as friends, it's our job to help them find that out and realize that emotion and make them feel safe because of that. And then once that emotion's gone... They'll have no um, nothing to justify anymore, nothing they're trying to justify or nothing that's motivating their argument a certain way. And then they'll see things clearly. Or at least have the opportunity again and again and again, again. however long it takes. When we remember, right? So uh, I'm sorry, guys, I have to go. All right. So <laughs> I leave the two of you. Have fun. It's good seeing you, man. Good Good to see you. Bye. Yeah, so I was just going to say um, we can practice uh, well and we can see these things and we can uh, feel joyful when we remember to. So, <laughs> like, something I hear Dom Rado always say, like, he, he'll say something and he's like, when you remember to, and he'll, like, have a good chuckle about that. So it's like a game of, like, when you remember to do it that's when you do it and like that's so much more playful than like some kind of like serious practice that uh um someone's embarking on and they imagine they're going to continue to embark on in the future um rather than just because it's oh. a delusion yeah. every every time is a, de a delusion in the sense it doesn't exist right now it's ah. if you want to use fancy language, it's like an emergent property, right? Time is an emergent property. What's right. happening right now is what's happening right now. And what's happening the next moment is what's happening right now and right now and right now. And if we think of always, we're going to be going back in the past, feeling bad for something we did or trying to predict the future and feeling bad or uh, trying to do. But what we can control is right now and we can remember right now and right now and right now. Right. Time is an emergent property. And that's uh, that's something that's um, 
can be seen experientially um, as as thoughts arise, as um, uh, sort of differentiating events arise in our own mind. So time is the comparison between the arising and passing away of of stuff in our experience. Um, so when we view things that way, we, we um, it's actually very interesting, all the things that are arising and passing away. And then out of that, the, the interpretation of time or the, the sense of time um, conspires together. And uh, it's the same with the sense of self. So the sense of self is a construction of um, various elements arising and passing away. Um, and then uh, this can be seen on more profound and more profound levels. And then uh, uh, something to see for yourself, but it's it, it can be seen in the Whatever practice. you remember. Whatever you remember. You Whenever remember. you remember, exactly. You exactly. remember. And uh, I like uh, Eric always comes back to that term of anatta just being selflessness. And uh, the other way is being selfish. And those are very down-to-earth terms. And that's really what the Buddha's path is about, is learning to be selfless. Stop creating that self thing of someone to get something, to show someone up, as we've been talking about, to prove them wrong, mm -hmm. that we don't need to do that anymore. We can just relax. Right. So that's just like beautifully simply put. And then that's the beauty of these uh, these teachings of the Buddha is that um, they're true on every level of things. So it's like if you look at a if you look at a fractal pattern, and you see, and one of those things that like no matter how much you zoom in, it's the same pattern repeating. It's similar to that extent where the whole picture. So on the surface level of things, the same truths apply, and the the, the pattern repeats on more and more like micro levels and it's just it emerges with like a spectacular beauty and like uh um almost like um dare i say divine order so there's like a sort of a natural uh, law of sorts yeah a natural law so um this can be a very sublime experience and uh it is kind of like uh aha like a revelation of like of course, like this is how it works, and it's so beautifully explained, and it's so like, um, it's like, um, it's totally um, wholesome in the sense that it's whole and complete, complete within itself. Like it, it encompasses all, all dualities, all problems, all stuff like that, to the point where. Um, it's completely satisfying so the dhamma is um sort of operates on that and then um no matter how advanced you uh perceive things or like get with the practices that um it's all it's all still impermanent like you'll come back to that ordinary level of being like oh yeah anatta means self selflessness and then you can see it and apply it on that scale of things and you can you can just practice the sila aspect of just um, rem remembering not to put yourself above others or not to put yourself before others in a very practical very real sense of like human relationship and then and then and then you can experience the fruit and the joy of that um, so it yeah so like these teachings and um, are, are are profound when we remember how profound they are um, Firstly, and then also increasingly, um, always increasingly profound because, um, you know, you never know what's going to happen next. And that's the beauty of the present moment is it's always new and it's always emerging and it's always completely changing. So it's never boring. And it's like you're always like um, um, there's a sense of like discovery um, with noble right view is that you're always discovering truth the truth of things and how things are and um it, <laughs> that kind of is always enjoyable you know? yeah yeah how could you not enjoy this right
the answer is by not seeing things clearly. Right. But like we're saying that it is so simple. It is the teachings are so simple, but people make them complex. Or or maybe even deceptively things at play. When they first get at things, the teachings are taught in a bunch of numbers, a bunch of lists, the four noble truths, the five hindrances, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That gets complicated. Sort of daunting. Yeah. But Dom Rado does a very good job of distilling yeah. it down to it's just this. Right. And then you can learn these other things and they might apply to different. Yeah. Uh, they're just different mental models to help with different situations or um, uh, whatever it be. But really what we're getting down to is Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda, suffering right. in the end of suffering. If right. this model isn't helping you or other people's decrease, decrease their suffering, what's its use? Throw it out. There's no, no need to mess with it. Right. Right. And then um, just saying this for anyone who may be watching is that um, the teachings may seem in this style. They're simple by intention. So they're simple intentionally because it's so effective. So it may even be like it may come off as deceptively simple. In the sense that, like, oh, like that's what too simple. Like, how's that? That seems simplistic. Like, that just seems like, like, oh, of course, I would think happier thoughts and make me happier. Duh. Like, people would be like, if yeah, I'm gonna just change my thoughts and be happier. Like, that's like, how would that work? But have you but ever tried it? <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. So like, that's what I'm trying to say is that exactly. it might be deceptively simple, but it is um true and it is effective. But you have to. Uh, of course, perform the experiment for yourself and uh, come and see for yourself, you know? Yes, exactly. And like you said, uh, that it is so simple. It's just fun to talk about and repeat over and over again. And right. that's how uh, that's how this stuff is learned. When someone's watching this YouTube video and they hear the same thing over and over and over again, they begin to apply it to their own life and think those same thoughts for themselves over and over and over again. Yeah. Uh, that's there's uh, the idea of the simplicity of it, right? When you hear a cliche and wow, that clicks, that's something that matches onto my experience. But then that person just goes along with their day and they continue living an ordinary lifestyle. And what we're doing is applying that wise cliche of Dukkha Dukkha Naroda or don't worry, be happy or thoughts are the forerunner for all. If you think happy thoughts, then there will be no problems. And intentionally practicing that whenever we remember in every moment that's what meditation is it's relaxing and then relaxing over and over and over again and finding out what happens to the mind that makes it so it doesn't relax and uh both uh seeing how that happens and taking the effort not to do that again mm -hmm. and yeah and the 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 way a lot of these videos work and uh these talks and these uh and then the talks with Don Morado and those videos is that um, it's kind of like training wheels. Like right now we're thinking the wholesome thoughts for you. So we can give you examples of like, what's a wholesome thought? And what's an example of a noble mind that's um, feeling good and feeling satisfied. But the challenge is then to put the ball in your court and then to um, see for yourself and apply it for yourself. And then that's, that's what makes you um, uh, spiritually mature in the sense that you can come back and talk about it even more and enjoy it even more because um, you did your homework, so to speak, and uh, you actually tried it. And uh, I think that's a good note to end it on. Um, uh, it's been great talking with you, man. Good to see you. Yes. Unless you have anything left to add. Just uh, as always, plugging uh, for the people watching this, yeah. These calls, everyone is welcome. Sometimes uh, when I watch stuff on YouTube, I'm not so clear on uh, how people end up right. talking like this. It's just a link in the description, a bunch of friends hanging out talking Dhamma. And if you're slightly interested, come on, hop on sometime. You don't even have to ask questions. Right. Just hang out and listen. And right. same with the Discord, that we have a bunch of active people talking out, talking, just being friends with each other. That's, that's all. Yeah, so that's the beauty of this community is that... Uh, um, you can generate uh, friendship and enthusiasm around these these topics, and uh, um, you can just come hang out if you just want to hang out with uh, 
um, individuals who are practicing the Dhamma, or you can contribute, ask your own questions, bring up your own points and viewpoints. And uh, anyone is welcome, of course. Yeah. All right. Great talking, Scott. All right, man. Take care. See you next hey, time. You as well. Bye.